Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives again and was recorded in October of 2014. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Charles Murray. Dr. Murray received a bachelor's in history from Harvard and attained his PhD in political science from MIT. Murray is a W.H. Brady Scholar and Hayek Chair of Cultural Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on society, culture, and universal basic income. He is the author of several books, including Losing Ground, a book about the efficacy of welfare programs in America. We were lucky enough to talk with Dr. Murray about welfare reforms in the 1960s, the inequality between the wealthy and working class, and how economic elites in the 1960s differ from modern-day elites. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back every week for a brand new episode. Charles, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Welcome to Smart Talk. All right, Dr. Murray, uh, thanks for uh, uh, coming on with us. Uh, as, as, as Georgists, we're social reformers in the backwater of, uh, of things, but hopefully with all our interviews and, and the power of this foundation, we, we hope to make uh, uh, a difference in society as things go forward. Your book was of great interest to us because you've outlined and, and documented a, a real bifurcation in American society. It did not occur in my time growing up, uh, but by the 60s, you've picked up a watershed change in, uh, in American culture and, and so forth. Now, as, as Georgists who study economics in a, in a kind of a big picture, we would pick it up as taking a look at America and seeing uh, a New York Washington, Boston, amalgam of very talented people, uh, industries that deal with the world, maybe outliers in San Francisco and LA, and uh, an area doing extremely well, international, manned by the symbolic analysts that you've, you and Mr. Reich have, have outlined. And we would argue that the rest of America, because of the trends that you document, are, are heading into a different status, kind of a, almost a dystopian, maybe a, a South American status, but there's a bifurcation here that may not be able to be put together. Now you argue, and hopefully, that that won't be the case, even though I think you agree, and you've done a fine-grained analysis of the split that, uh, that has occurred. And if you would pick it up in the 1960s, you point out trends from uh, the assassination of Kennedy, the accession of LBJ, uh, uh, women's lib, uh, women's rights group, or racial uh, pressures to change things. You pick it up at that point and you start documentation, documenting changes that, that, that start from that period till today. You want to comment on the period that started in the 1960s, its, uh, its consistency, its, uh, its uh, American as a together country, and then all of a sudden trends occurred that culminated in, in the things that you've documented? Well, you, you have two sets of forces at work that affect the top and the bottoms of society differently. 
I would argue that a lot of the problems that uh, go into the development of the new lower class stem from the 1960s. And, and in, that, in that sense, I'm, I'm recapitulating a lot of the arguments I made in Losing Ground, that in the 1960s, with the best of intentions, a variety of changes were made that, that in effect changed the rules of the game for poor people, and especially for young poor people, and most especially of all for poor young black people, uh, which is to say young people at the end of the 1960s, if they were thinking about dropping out of school, if they were thinking about having a baby, if they were thinking about committing a crime, if they were thinking about a variety of other things, there were lots of incentives to do things in the short term that are disastrous in the long term. Whether it's the effects on educational reforms for, uh, for dropout or whether it's the effects of changes in the welfare system for making it easier to support a, a baby without a husband or whatever. That's a long argument. I don't want to okay, go into much more detail on it because it's also a very contentious argument. You know, the but argument would be why, why would those programs have been put into place, in, in place at that time? After all, we're coming off World War II. Uh, it's a pretty homogenous society in terms of wealth, education, cohesiveness. It may have been a Babbitt society, but it was still onward and upward. The 60s were... Were, were times of great productivity. Of course, you had yeah. the Vietnamese War and so forth and things like that. But why would you have had to have a welfare shift uh, in effect at that time as opposed to uh, another time? Why then? The reason that these reforms occurred in the 1960s was, I think, tied up with the Civil Rights Movement. I, I think I have a few years on you in age, but you're old enough to remember, I think, what uh, the atmosphere was then. There was a real sea change in the consciousness of white America about what it had been doing to black America. It was a genuine sea change in, in consciousness, which was good, and it was needed. But what happened with the great society was that you had an awful lot of things that were triggered, I think, out of a broad impulse to try to make up for some of the disadvantages that black America had been laboring under all those years. You had the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but it was Pat Moynihan who said very directly at that, that a lot of these other programs which were installed then had no obvious reason for happening, except that it was a way of paying back uh, black America for what had been done to it. And I think that's a plausible explanation for a lot of it. But then, also, one other thing, well, just one other point. We were very naive at that point about how hard it is to do good. We had not tried systematic social programs to try to, to, to uh, raise test scores or uh, increase incomes or, or train people for jobs. And it seemed at the time like these things were doable. You have young people who don't have job skills. Well, you, you get a job core program. You put them in training programs and they'll get jobs. It seemed simple. In retrospect, we were very naive. We didn't realize how hard it is to construct social programs that work. Okay, but your analysis essentially deals with white America and shows the pathologies that essentially occur to white people. And at the end, you bring other, other races and cultures into it and in effect demonstrate it didn't make much difference in the aggregate numbers that you have outlined if you just look at white America, poor white America, middle America, and and rich white America. So if we stay with the analysis of white America, why would the white American society become dysfunctional 
certainly not for civil rights reasons. No, no. But the programs, the incentives for the programs to be started, I think, is grounded in the civil rights movement. <laughs> but the, the laws passed affected everybody. So when you changed uh, the incentives uh, for the various kinds of behaviors for young people I talked about, they affected white Americans as well as black Americans. Now, empirically, there is a, a, there's a lag. For example, you saw an increase in out-of-wedlock births among uh, blacks during the 1960s. It took a few years for the same kind of increase to start among whites. You had uh, reductions in marriage where there was a time lag. But essentially, the policies that applied to blacks also applied to whites and, and had the same uh, incentive effects. Okay. Let me just interject before we get into your, your analysis. Uh, at that uh, time, if we look at the big picture, uh, America versus the world, we're, we're coming off World War II. Uh, it's a relatively together society. Yes, there was seg uh, segregation for, for sure, but poverty levels had dropped radically in, uh, in, in America during that period. And it was also a time where uh, corporations uh, treated their employees differently. They treated them as, as something that was integral to their overall development. Uh, you would have, I grew up in that era in, in, in corporate America, and uh, there was a sense that if you did the right thing, the corporation would do the right thing uh, to you. And there was hope, there was jobs all the way through the skill ladder because you certainly didn't have the outsourcing. And so therefore, even poor white Americans could find hope in that they could get a job somewhere in the system, even if it's subcontractors to main corporations. So you, you, you had nothing like what you demonstrated occurred uh, back, back then. And of course, I would argue, again, a bigger picture than you took on in your, in your book. At some point in time in the 1960s, and and, 19, and and approaching the Reagan years in 1970, uh, American industry decided that outsourcing would be a, an effective way to lower costs. And in effect, you, def, you decimate communities by, by doing that. But the, there didn't seem to be any recognition of the collateral damage by outsourcing in terms of how it would affect workers all the way up and down uh, the, the ladder in corporations. But more importantly, I think the outsourcing and the downsizing broke trust for the average American to the point where why would he be a believer in the system? And then all of the pathologies that you've outlined could follow from that. I would argue that outsourcing, internationalizing uh, the workforce, and economically it makes sense. If I were a New York fellow and I was a corporation man, I have no problem with that. The decimation that might come from uh, denuding com uh, communities and jobs at all levels uh, are, are, are collateral damage that I don't really see at the time. But you now pick that collateral damage up and document it without necessarily identifying the forces that made it other than the Civil Rights Acts and things that you said now. So within that context, I mean, you can contest what I've said. I'm just bringing another dimension in that I don't think that was necessary for you to consider because you did document what had happened. Let's take the role of outsourcing and globalization and the rest of it as it contributed to the dropout of white males from the labor force, which definitely happened. Well, that's one set of causes, and I think they, they were causes to some degree. I think there are another set of causes which are independent of that, but in a way, they don't make any difference anymore. 
because if, if you've got a 24-year-old guy now who is out of the labor market, he's never really held a job, doesn't have any skills, he's not really employable, you know, the, in the sense that if he goes to work, odds are that after the first week or so, he'll get in an argument with his boss. He uh, won't like the, he doesn't know how to deal with a supervisor-subordinate relationship. He'll get fired or he'll come in late or the rest of it. So why is he in that situation? If the causes meant that we could reverse them and thereby reverse the problem, then that would be great. But at some point, you get a cultural shift that, that is independent of the original economic causes that may have been there. So, so I guess this is where I uh, part company with some of those uh, on the economic left who um, say that, oh, it's, it's all economics and this idea that the work ethic has changed in working class America is wrong. It's just that there aren't any jobs out there. I think that only an academic economist can believe that. I think if you go into any working class bar and you talk to the guys and you talk to the gals that are there too about what's going on in working class America, this is not rocket science to them. There are some people that are trying hard and can't find jobs. And there are also a, a fairly large chunk of the young male population that really is not particularly interested in working, even when the jobs are available. And that's just a reality. And we, have, we ought to deal with that reality, I think, even if we disagree on causes. Okay, uh, that's fair. Then you've done a, a potent analysis by comparing Belmont, I think it's Belmont, Mass. Belmont, but, yeah. Uh, and uh, Fishtown in Philadelphia, where in effect you've, you, you've set the stage by saying, in this country there's an, a super elite class intellectually of about 100,000 people and a, and a subaltern uh, elite class of about a million and a half people who basically are riding a nice rocket ship to success. And just underneath that, you picked uh, people uh, from Belmont as a, as, a, as a bellwether of characteristics of upper class, but not super upper class. And you took Fishtown, uh, a, a place in Philadelphia that's uh, a little lower class than, than, let's say, dead in the middle. And you went through the uh, pathologies, both in marriage, uh, industriousness, religion, a number of items where you show distinct changes in the from the 1960s to the 1990s. They were compelling, clear, uh, and, and kind of proved the point that you have almost an irreversible uh, set of conditions which you've outlined. Of course, whether it's whether you could change that by a flood of, uh, of jobs, uh, that's the question, of course, uh, uh, that we'll put off to the side because that's, that's contentious. We can't prove it one way or the other. But you've documented clearly that there is this class, and it's cultural, and it's cultural, and it's almost locked in. Uh, any comments on, on the, the ability not to move those classes now either up or down? Let's talk a minute about what happened with the upper class, because that's a different story. It actually started in the 1950s, and it's just as important as what happened to the new lower class, because you're right. There is a set of people in this country that are riding an economic rocket ship and doing great, and it's, a, it's the result of some actually some good things. 
For example, it is a good thing that starting in the 1950s, lots more young people uh, got to go to college than before, even if they didn't have money in the family. Not only did they get to go to college, colleges got very good at identifying uh, academic talent and sending it off to elite colleges. So that's all good. Uh, it's, it's also good the, that, uh, that they were able to move into technological jobs that had lots of advantages for the economy. I mean, the IT industry and a lot of the other technological developments that this new elite, if you want to call it that, um, developed are good. The problem is that you brought together a cohort of very smart, very well-trained people. They develop a kind of distinct set of tastes and preferences. Uh, they have money, and this group increasingly segregates itself from the rest of society. You made it perfectly clear how that happens. Your homogamy examples, your, your selections in college examples, your, your proof of uh, the different stratas of uh, in, in intelligence associated with bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, and so forth. The statistics are very, very clear. The question I would have for you is that once you have this elite class, why would this class identify back with the rest of the population? Elites uh, don't necessarily uh, do that. I mean, at least in the American project, as you've outlined, where everybody was accidentally thrown together and there was no real way to, to separate yourself, a lot of good things happened to America. It was a balanced economy. It was a powerful economy. It was a, an economy where people knew each other from all classes and across lines. Now, I'm not saying this is the ultimate uh, class society, but it was very effective, and you yourself have, uh, have basically uh, are missing now that kind of thing and that kind of cohesiveness because you see yourself that it's now split. And I would argue almost impossible to bring it back. You know, I, I imagine that you and I may have had similar experiences in this regard. Uh, my parents, my father only was a high school graduate, couldn't afford to go to college. Uh, I grew up, I go to Harvard. I still know from my own upbringing that other America. And as you can tell from the book, I still feel a great deal of allegiance toward, toward, toward mainstream America. My children are more isolated from that because I move into the upper middle class. We live in upper middle class places when they're growing up. They go to schools that are in the suburbs. There's, there's nobody to demonize here. My children simply don't have the same contact with mainstream America uh, that, that I had. And it's why is this happening? Well, because parents want their kids to live in nice places and they want them to go to good schools. And, and so the, the, the next generation, you have a kind of separation that wasn't really possible in America before and is, poss and is possible now. And it's people doing what comes naturally. The argument I have tried to make, and believe me, I'm not at all confident it will work, is to say to the new upper class that is segregated from mainstream America, you're missing something. By isolating yourself from mainstream America, your life is not as much fun as it would be if you were more fully engaged with the, with the, the wonderful variety of people and cultures and the richness of America. You and, I, you and I remember that. Our backgrounds are similar. But I would argue, living in New York and seeing uh, 
these fellows firsthand, I, I don't think they really care about missing those experiences. My, I'm afraid my, right. feeling, my feeling is that, look, we're lucky. We were born this way. We had gifts. We marry people who have gifts. Uh, we're able to make lots of money simply because the kind of work we do allows us to, in effect, uh, yes, it's, 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 it's productive in the sense of technology, but it's also in finance, where the big money has been made, is essentially extractive and monopolistic. And, and it's, it's essentially a form of buccaneering by very, very bright people and who are having a lot of fun with it and have feathered their nests by moving their money all around the world. And I doubt that uh, uh, they look around, they're not stupid people. They understand exactly what you've, you, you, you've outlined. They look at it and say, and I'm just generically speaking, not much I can do about it. These are trends that happened accidentally. There was, this was not wrestling. We didn't rig this game. We didn't set up a, a worldwide wrestling federation game to outwit everybody. It happened by abilities that we have. But now we have them. We're not giving them back. And there's other elites, China and Europe, that are in competition with us. Uh, maybe we're better off dealing with those people. Maybe we can outsource all our needs to Chinese workers. We don't need, we can create a virtual country. We don't need a national country. And it would be impossible to get it back given the pathology that you've, you've outlined. Anyway, I think that that would be the, 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 the argument. And as Georges, we would say, okay, fair enough. We can't take it back from you, you're simply too smart. But we'd like to tax monopoly where it appears, even though that's where it shows up with the, with the kind of talent that they have. We'll tax that. Not tax your income or necessarily investments, but we'll tax monopoly, land rents, uh, creation of money out of thin air type thing. We'll tax that and use that as the tax base, and that will kind of equalize it and still keep you motivational. We would argue that. Go ahead. Well, when you come to that kind of attempt to solve it, I'm sympathetic with, uh, with that attempt because the, the economic inequality bothers me not so much in and of itself. I don't really care if other people are rich, and historically Americans have not minded if other people are, are, are rich, as long as they, they made it fairly. Well, that's the question. The economic inequality is generating so much of the cultural inequality that if you can figure out ways to mitigate that, I'm all in favor of it. I think your description of people in New York fits very closely with what I have observed among people in New York, uh, particularly in the finance industry. I think more generally around the country, the new elites are kind of satisfied with who they are. Um, so if I were to say, what are the odds that the United States is going to be able to retrieve this notion of uh, uh, this unique country in which people are allowed to live their lives as they see fit? What are the odds of that? I would say they're pretty low. I would say so too. The, the only thing I would say uh, optimistically is there is still a, a great affection. Maybe it's just nostalgic affection, but it's a very widespread affection for the older concept of America. In the course of talking to people after the book came out, Coming Apart, I have spoken to some audiences where everybody in the audience is really rich. And sometimes, but they, but they are people who've made their own money, okay? They aren't, they didn't inherit it. And sometimes I will say to them, to what extent 
are you systematically depriving your children of the experiences that made you who you are? To what experience are your children having de deprived upbringings by living in these wealthy neighborhoods and going to the best schools? I see a lot of heads nodding. I see a lot of, 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 of people in the elite who are worried about their children being these hothouse flowers, uh, sheltered from the real world. What can be made of that in a policy sense? I don't know. I, I will say that that sense that there's a problem is out there. Okay, let me just uh, weigh in on that. Uh, it's a question of uh, wealth extremes. There's always been wealth extremes in every, in every society, but the magnitude of productivity and the gathering of that uh, magnitude in, in terms of wealth, there's never been a concentration like that in the world today that exists now. From the, the top 1% or the top one-tenth of 1%, one it's hugely powerful, it's aggregative, and it acts in unison. And it's almost mindless because it wasn't planned to be that way. It's just the forces of technology, wealth creation, the ability of smart people to set up monopoly situations to extract the thing, it happens on a day-to-day -day basis. A hedge fund guy, it doesn't mean to be a bad guy or, or, or something like that. He's just a smart guy that pension funds give him their money and he throws it into the game. Uh, he gambles with it in effect. It's, it's, it's more gambling than in investing, but it allows uh, American finance to be very powerful around the world. And therefore, uh, American policymakers are certainly not going to say no to that. And if it crashes from time to time, well, they'll pick it back up, as you see, and, and bail it back in again to do the same thing. Now, that kind of self-perpetuating thing is, is so disproportionate that it's going to overturn determine things in any, any society. And, it, and, and they look at themselves as a self-contained group who can do this, and it's so much fun, and you're only going to live... So many years, if you're, if you're 50 years old and you've got 20 more years of this go, to go, you know environmentally the world's under pressure. There's really no incentive to really stop this thing and, and get off. And they look back at the, 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 the classes who have suffered from this, and they see that and they say, we really can't do too much about it. It's almost going to be a waste of time. And anyway, we've got our hands full with an upcoming China, an upcoming India, Europe that's... Uh, uh, change this model to be your, your classic description, uh, treating people as just bundles of chemicals to have happiness and be taken care of. And, uh, and so I think we're kind of locked into that model with no apparent change. But you did offer one thing that was, I thought, brilliant. It wasn't something that you, you, you documented, but you talked about uh, the possibility of a transformation of Americans of a moral nature. And I don't mean it in a, in, a, in a modeling sense that they're going to discover a new God or new something like that, but there was a, a I think Toynbee, I, I think he used Toynbee's uh, description of uh, moral junctures that can occur in societies that uh, either over-engineer themselves or get too far ahead of themselves and, and, and escape from the rest of their own society. And I think that you you cover that brilliantly, and if you could do that now, I think that would be something that we could talk about and then perhaps go back to some more statistics. If it is true that to live a satisfying life uh, requires being engaged with the people around you in vocation and in community, 
in some, for some people in faith and in family, if, if those are really the satisfactions uh, of, of life. And, and you prove that unequivocally with your, with your surveys and statistics. Yeah, and, and I think in our own personal experiences. Uh, we, we, we recapitulate that, that understanding. If that's really true, uh, then you really need to have vital communities. Uh, you need to have vital families. You, and, and those kinds of things, the upper class is as a much danger of losing in some respects as the lower class is. So I, I invoke in the book the history of great reawakenings that the United States has had. We've had three or four of them where really we have turned on a dime culturally. And uh, over a period of a few years, in the 1820s, alcohol consumption fell by 50% or some such figure uh, because of the Great Reawakening then. There are huge effects that go on. Insofar as people are looking at life now and saying, you know, the 15,000 square foot house isn't what it's cracked up to be uh, in terms of, of leading a satisfying life. Insofar as they are trying to find uh, deeper, more richer, and, and, and more solid ways living a satisfying life, you have the potential, only the potential, for the same kind of moral reawakening. Once again, I'm afraid that we're reinforcing each other's pessimism in some respects, though, because I say these things, I hope they're true, I jawbone about them trying to help them come true, I think the odds are against it. All right. The question, of course, is can we leverage... Uh our acts or activities into making that possibility uh, more real. And, uh, and I kind of go back to the Roosevelt uh, tradition of, in effect, bounding and limiting excess uh, as, as a way to get a hold of this thing and, and, and allow it to breathe and come back to community as you've outlined. Now, you, you believe and probably rightly so, that the pathologies in, in the lower-class white America make it impossible for them to hold jobs and other things. Uh, there, I'm not so pessimistic, and I'm sort of an economic determinist in, in that I say you bound the wealth, you tax away monopoly, you prevent runaway uh, from runaway shops, in effect, the outsourcing, you make provisions for economic development within communities, not necessarily lowest cost. And if you do that, given the amount of technology we have in this world, and we have, we can make a much, much stronger case for economic growth, and we can be more inclusive. Because we've always been inclusive, uh, almost in an accidental sense. Uh, in effect, I'm saying, let's create an artificial open frontier. If you look at Americans' history, I mean, what made American, uh, America unusual, I would argue, is the open frontier that made it impossible to exploit people to the nth degree because you could always move west. You could always escape that pressure. Now, that, that was mindless in a way, but it was real. And you had a very rich continent, and you had two oceans protecting you. And, uh, and then our founders were smart enough to put up a few tariffs against English manufacturing. And because we had to pay better wages, and we couldn't rack rent everybody to the nth degree. We created purchasing power expansion and a virtuous cycle that culminated in American exceptionalism. For 200 years, as long as the frontier was open, we had that. And it wasn't the pathologies that you outlined. So there's some cause and effect there. And then I would argue when the frontier closed, everyone said, well, the frontier closed in 1900. I would argue we had two synthetic 
frontiers open up. We had World War I and World War II, where we supplied the rest of the world with all the armaments and fun they could have, blowing each other to pieces, and we had jobs for everybody. Black America did quite well in 1940s, working in defense industry, coming, coming, coming north. So we had one regular open frontier, two synthetic open, open frontiers, and then by 1970, no more accidental frontiers. And now Americans are wondering, what went wrong? Uh, well, of course, I would argue what went wrong is you didn't have that virtuous accidental cycle that no other country in the world had. And we have to kind of recreate that. Your comments. Well, my own view about, about this is that one way or another, we have to put people's lives back in their own hands. You talk about doing that by giving them a way of escaping, in a sense, to a, to a new frontier, to new possibilities, uh, new frontiers of new definitions. I would say, what about a basic income as a way of dealing with this, a basic guaranteed income? And I wrote a book to that effect. Uh, the idea being this, it would replace the entire welfare state. My notion is that one of the real problems in the working class now is not that other people are making too much money. It's that there is no sense that they can make what they will of their own lives. There is no sense of, of, of a kind of power over their own lives. A basic guaranteed income, but without any of the apparatus of the welfare state, is another kind of approach, where I argue at that point, uh, you are not on your own, but insofar as you have problems, the people you have to go to are family, are community. You can't go to the bureaucracy downtown and, and deal with a mechanistic kind of system. You, you can live a rich life, a successful life, but you have no choice but to do it in concert with your fellow human beings at a very personal level. Let me interject. Uh, if, if, if either, let, I, here's where I think we have something in common, um, even though our solutions are quite different. And, and that is that the problems we are facing now are problems of meaning, meaningful life in a post-industrial age. True. And we haven't figured that out yet. There has never been a time in human history where so many people were liberated from the prospect of immediate starvation and death, uh, where, where there was enough wealth that, that you could put aside a lot of the things that uh, uh, throughout history people couldn't put aside. Let me interject right there. I would argue, in terms of uh, a citizen's dividend, not necessarily a guaranteed income, but if we taxed, and we've done studies on this, if we tax monopoly in this country, uh, you would not kill incentive. You could, you could give that dividend as a citizen's dividend. It would be basic to everybody. And in addition to that, if you were working and investing, you could have that over and above that citizen's dividend. So that, in effect, eliminates the bureaucracy that muddles these kinds of things up. It's, it's a dividend for being part of a powerful country. And the wealth creation from that country is monopolized in many ways that it shouldn't be. For example, resources land and so forth, the common things, common use. You should pay rent for that. That rent goes to the society. That's a citizen's dividend that you could give to the population. It would add up to almost 25% of the GNP. You wouldn't need to tax anything else. You wouldn't need an income tax. You need, wouldn't need a capital gains tax. 
the system would balance out and it would serve to say, I'm a citizen, I'm not getting a handout, I'm not getting a guaranteed wage. In effect, you would be getting it, but you would be getting it as a citizen's dividend. The people at the top couldn't argue about it because it's a tax on common property, not their efforts, not their brains, and not their ingenuity. And that would, would still play a big part, and they would make plenty of money. They just wouldn't make the monopoly money along with it. And I would argue that would achieve your your ends as a libertarian. Very interesting ideas, uh, which I, we cannot solve in this conversation, but very interesting ideas. Dr. Murray, thank you. Do you have any final thoughts or, or things you'd like to say? Well, I, I guess I would say this, that the kinds of ideas that you have been talking about, uh, many of which I had not considered before, but whether I would eventually agree with them or not is not as important as is the fact that they get out of the box that we're in right now. The box where we're in right now, where you have the left saying we need to have more benefits for the people at the bottom, and the right saying, no, that's not the way to go, is so sterile. And it is so irrelevant to the nature of the kinds of problems we have that, believe me, I am, I am happy to hear anyone who has some ideas that break us out of that gridlock. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And that's it for this edition of Smart Talk. In upcoming shows, we will be talking to such renowned economists as Anwar Scheich, a professor of economics at the graduate faculty of the New School. His work in political economy focuses on U.S. macroeconomic policy, inequality in the world scale, and past and current global economic crises. We'll also talk with James Ricards. He is an American lawyer, economist, and investment banker and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Currency Wars, The Making of the Next Global Crisis. Please post your questions and comments on our website at www.henrygeorgeschool.org. I'm Andrew Mazzoni. We will see you again next time. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.